Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sit and Listen, bringing scientists to you. Sit and Listen is a production of Science in the News, a graduate student-run organization at Harvard University that's committed to bridging the communication gap between scientists and, well, the rest of the world. My name is Vinnie Money. I'm Elizabeth Yench. My name is Amy Gilson. And I'm Angela Shee. And today, we'll be talking to you about CRISPRs. Last month, we talked about GMOs and how genetic engineering has become a staple of not only biological research, but the food industry as well. One technique called CRISPR is predicted to change the genetic engineering game. What is CRISPR? How did scientists discover it? And why is everyone talking about it? Even before we knew what genes were, we sought to alter the genetic makeup of the biological world around us, from growing bigger and more resilient crops to the creation of our favorite dog and cat breeds. When we did learn about genes and their connection to biological traits, there was a movement to understand what every gene does. And as such, it is imperative that we are able to manipulate genes so we can see what happens in animals when these genes are changed or even deleted. Scientists have developed many methods to manipulate genes, including some that we talked about in our last podcast, like random mutagenesis, where an organism is bombarded with radiation that causes mutations in the genome, and gene insertion, where a gene of interest, potentially from another species, is inserted into an organism's genome. We are also able to make genes non-functional, or knock them out, by altering the sequence of the gene. Then, to understand what happens when a gene is knocked out in an animal, we can create what we call a knockout animal by introducing the altered sequence into cells and then implanting the cells into animal embryos, thereby creating a lineage of animals that have a genetic mutation that we can study. If this sounds like it would take a long time, it does. Over the years, scientists developed many methods to make genetic manipulation easier, but it is still laborious and time-intensive. Some graduate students spend their entire five-year thesis altering just one gene and don't even get to use it. Five years is optimistic. <laughs> maybe maybe six <laughs> years, seven years, I don't know. We don't just want gene editing to be faster. We want it to be precise. We want to know what we're changing and where we're changing it in the genome. When you insert a gene, like we talked about in our GMO episode, you can't really control where it goes in the genome. To use a food analogy, because I love food, it is a bit like inserting a new recipe into a cookbook. Maybe your new bourbon-glazed pecan pie recipe would make the most sense inserted in the pie section, maybe even next to the other pecan pie recipes you have. But you can't control where you stick it, so it ends up between split pea soup and a vegetarian chili. The information is still there, and you can still access it, but the placement is not quite ideal. Maybe you find that your bourbon-glazed pecan pie recipe is so good, you just want to replace your old boring pecan pie recipe with this one. This is how scientists often think about genetic manipulation. The ideal would be to tweak a gene where it stands in the genome so that everything else remains the same, and we can study how this altered gene alone affects an animal. So what is CRISPR? CRISPR... C-R-I-S-P-R, there's no E, um, stands for Cluster Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. This is kind of, yeah, this is kind (laughs) of a mouthful, so let's break it down. It's a system of adapted immunity found in bacteria. If a bacteria is exposed to foreign DNA, say from an invading virus, one of its most ancient defense mechanisms is a stretch of DNA that contains samples of enemy virus DNA from viruses it had encountered before. Similar to the FBI's most wanted list, once a virus has presented itself, the bacteria can recognize an enemy's face, or in this case, its DNA. The most wanted list consists of clusters of invader DNA sequences separated by short stretches of repeated palindromic DNA, giving rise to the name CRISPR. 
When the bacteria detects an infection, a protein called Cas uses the CRISPR sequence to recognize enemy DNA and chops it up into little pieces. Actually, when a virus infects bacteria, not all bacteria are lucky enough to live and tell the tale. Many bacteria infected by viruses die, and it's just the lucky surviving ones that can incorporate a bit of the virus's DNA into the CRISPR part of its own genome, getting immunity to its former foe from then on. One of the awesome things about science is the application of a system from nature to be used in a completely different context. Exactly. In research, we are now able to use the system to target specific genes, much as bacteria use it to target invading DNA. The previously mentioned Cas protein uses a stretch of genetic material called guide RNA, which has a sequence that matches that of the target DNA. This guide RNA targets the Cas protein to its matching sequence, and Cas can then make a cut. In the lab, we can now design these guide RNAs to target a Cas protein, usually Cas9, to a specific gene where it will make a cut, which we can use to achieve a whole variety of goals. And one of the most common and simplest uses of CRISPR is to just knock out specific genes. What this means is that scientists use CRISPR targeting and cutting mechanisms to make a cut in a specific gene and then just wait for the DNA repair mechanisms to intervene. Sometimes, as the cell tries to repair DNA damage, it will make a mistake and a few bases of DNA will be inserted or lost. And this could potentially disrupt a gene enough to prevent the protein that the gene would normally code for from being produced, essentially creating a cell or organism without that protein at all. By introducing a piece of additional DNA, scientists could also introduce a specific mutation or other element into an organism's genome. The inserted piece of DNA simply has to have a stretch on either side that is identical to the sequence where it is being inserted. When the cell repairs the cut in the DNA, it will sometimes look for identical sequences to serve as kind of a template to repair it. If the inserted piece of DNA is there, it can then serve as this template, and the designed middle portion can then be inserted in the appropriate part of the genome where you want it to be inserted. This can allow for more specific mutations to a specific part of a gene or for other tools, such as additional sequences that could make studying a protein easier. There are predecessors of CRISPR that function similarly, but were much harder to design. Because CRISPR uses an RNA guide, it is simple for anyone in a lab to design and assemble a construct to modify their cells or organisms in very little time. It usually takes me just over a week from beginning to plan what I want to do to my gene to actually having the finished construct and inserting it into my cell lines to actually make those changes. Do of you use CRISPR in your own research, or are you maybe going to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, Elizabeth, definitely. I don't use it. Most of my work is on a computer, and I don't know of anyone in my lab doing it. So one of the questions that I had is whether CRISPR is just going to speed up the work that everyone's already doing and just make it easier, make it faster, or whether it actually changes the kind of research we can do. In addition to just going faster, the other thing actually modifying a gene in its normal place the genome allows you to do is change the overall system of the cell as little as possible, making the system as simple as possible and getting at your question as directly as possible. And what this does is allows you to be able to create a model system in order to be able to study what you want to study. Yeah, so if you want to study a human disease, you need something other than a human to do your experiments on. And that's where model systems come in. 
For example, we can develop a mouse model that mimics a human disease, but which we can actually experiment on in the lab. For this approach to work, the genes and other biology involved have to be similar in mouse and humans, and that's often a decent approximation. But we can also use human cells as a model system, cells either from healthy humans or humans with the disease, depending on what you're studying. Then we do experiments on these isolated cells in the lab rather than on the whole human organism. With both approaches, you can study a disease or other biological topic in a simplified yet relevant context, but they have slightly different uses. In general, if you want to study how a change affects an entire organism, you would use an animal model. Whereas, if you're trying to understand the specifics of genetic or molecular changes in humans, we would use human cells. So the approach you pick depends on the type of question you want to answer. Great. And model systems are so important because if you want to be able to answer the right question, you should be able to you should ask it in the right system. So as a graduate student where you have a limited number of years, hopefully, before you're in and out, it's really important that you're even able to ask your questions at all. So if you don't have a relevant model system, you might just be going around in circles and not actually getting to the question that you want to answer. And it really sucks to spend your entire graduate school career stuck on just making a model system and then realize that like eight years of your life have passed by. So in in conclusion, CRISPR allows you to work faster, but it also allows you to answer the questions you've been asking in a better way. So how do you actually get CRISPR into a cell to do the job? It's not like we can wave this magic wand of CRISPR over our cells to make this happen. Uh, To do this, we use a process that's called transfection, where we use reagents that will allow us to sort of break into the cell and put in what we call plasmid DNA sequences that can be translated into the correct protein and RNA components by the cell. So instead of putting the gigantic proteins themselves into the cell, we put the Cas9 and other components that are necessary into this plasmid DNA form and slip them into the cell. And there are synthetic products that will allow us to transfect these plasmids into cells. Sometimes to hijack the cell, we use, ironically, viruses to put CRISPR-Cas9 and the guide RNA plasmids into a cell in a process that we call transduction. Here we take the same plasmid DNA sequences, but package them into a virus, which has the intrinsic ability to insert genetic material into a cell, and put the virus on the cells of interest in order for the plasmids to go in and express the components of your CRISPR system. As you can tell, a lot of us are excited about about using CRISPR to help humans. But while we work on domesticating the CRISPR, we're actually still trying to understand a lot about how it functions in the wild. So in oceans, bacteria and viruses are always duking it out. When there are a lot of viruses, they kill and they infect and kill a lot of bacteria. So the population of bacteria plummets. But eventually, the number of bacteria gets so low that there are very few bacteria around for the viruses to infect. At that point, the viral population starts to decrease in size, which in turn allows the bacteria to return happily and multiply again until the cycle repeats itself. Now, CRISPR seems to fit into this predator-prey dynamic by allowing bacteria to evolve immunity to viruses more quickly than other forms of evolution that we already knew about. Some studies indicate that bacterial populations remain diverse throughout their arms race with viruses when they have CRISPR, 
Without CRISPR, only a small number of bacterial types might survive and repopulate after a viral onslaught. Plus, a really interesting aspect of CRISPR is that because bacteria with CRISPR are always incorporating new bits of viral DNA into their genomes, they provide a fascinating sort of fossil record of all the viruses that they've come in contact with. And we as scientists can go and look at that and see how viruses have changed over time. This is the sort of canonical story of CRISPR's function in the environment. But there's growing evidence that CRISPR plays other biological roles as well. For example, bacteria may actually use CRISPR to silence their own genes so that they stop making molecules that are detected by our own immune systems. Okay, so so far, everything that we've said is like about how awesome CRISPR is, whether you're a bacteria in the wild or you're a scientist in the lab. <laughs> uh, but any, any sort of guesses on what percent of bacteria are actually expected to have CRISPR? 90%. Yeah, I would guess 80 or so. 90. Okay, so best guesses right now, which come from surveying all the genomes that we have sequenced and trying to find characteristically CRISPR-like sequences, is that only 50% of bacteria actually use CRISPR. So why, why is this? Okay, there are a couple different possibilities of why. One is that it's not the only kind of adaptive immunity, and there are many others that we need to discover. Another possibility is that CRISPR isn't helpful in all contexts, just in some contexts. CRISPR, as we've talked about, confers a fitness advantage on bacteria when their survival depends on identifying and eliminating foreign DNA. Now, in nature, bacteria are actually trading genes pretty often. And there's evidence that this process is slowed down when a bacteria has CRISPR. Antibiotic resistance often arises when bacteria acquires a gene from another bacteria, which gives it antibiotic resistance. So CRISPR might actually be bad for bacteria in, for example, a hospital setting where antibiotics are used extensively. In fact, it's been shown that in a particular pathogen uh, that had acquired antibiotic resistance, it had also lost its CRISPR system. So we can hypothesize that it's losing its CRISPR that allowed it to acquire the DNA it needed to grow resistant to antibiotics. Now, learning about how CRISPR works in nature is really interesting just in its own right. But as you can see, it might also lead to harnessing more of its features um, and so on to benefit human health. Um, for example, a protein that might work even better than Cas9, which is called CPF1, was found just by studying analogous proteins, so proteins similar to Cas9, in various other bacterial species. And this was just announced and could end up making a big splash. I searched for CRISPR on Google News the other day and got almost 50,000 results, which is kind of crazy because you think about journals like Nature and Science um, that have been constantly publishing on it. And as a person who potentially could use CRISPR, I'm keeping abreast of this. But news outlets like the BBC, CNN, the New York Times and The Economist, as well as university level newspapers are also have like have caught this CRISPR fever um, because the applications outside research for this technology are really something to think about. Sure, there is a lot of potential. As we've discussed, using CRISPR allows us, in theory, to make quick modifications to the genetic material, the DNA or the RNA, actually, in a cell. A logical application then for CRISPR in therapeutics is to identify diseases that are caused by a genetic problem or those can th that can be fixed with a simple genetic modification. 
and uh, these are diseases such as sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. Lucky for us, we already have a good eye on these thanks to our advances in genetic sequencing and disease classification. One interesting and sought-after application of CRISPR is to use genetic editing in what we call blood stem cells. A stem cell is a cell that can give rise to uh, any particular cell type in the body. So a blood stem cell or hematopoietic stem cell is a cell that can give rise to any cell of the immune system or a blood cell. In the bone marrow, blood stem cells are maturing into cells of the immune system and red blood cells um, on their own all the time. And the advantage of using hematopoietic stem cells in therapy is that we know how a transplant process will work. You basically take a patient's bone marrow cells, which contain these blood stem cells, using a big needle. It's kind of a painful procedure. Uh, You can then modify them using CRISPR and then put the cells back into the patient's bloodstream. You can even inject them um, intravenously. And HSC hematopoietic stem cells are unique in that they do have their ability to find their way back home to the bone marrow so that they can go through the proper maturation process once again. And we've been doing bone marrow transplants for many years now. There are other known endeavors um, which various companies are working on, such as creating a mutation that will lead to reduced HIV infection in a gene called CCR5, which is a protein that HIV actually uses to hijack a particular cell type in the immune system. There are individuals who are thought to be resistant in some capacity to HIV infection that have this particular mutation that you can try to recreate in others and potentially halt the spread and susceptibility of HIV infection. Right now, there are a lot of companies working on targeting sickle cell anemia and HSC, as well as direct editing of T cells, which is a particular type of cell in the immune system for various immunotherapy applications as well. There do unfortunately happen to be a lot of challenges. Yeah, one of the biggest problems with CRISPR is specificity or off-target effects, which means that there are problems with making sure that the guide RNA does not bring the Cas protein to cut in other parts of the genome where it's not supposed to, and therefore change other genes and potentially ruin a cell or organism. Um, So people are using different options to try and minimize these effects. One that's pretty common right now is to use a nickase. So usually Cas9, which is used in research, cuts through both strands of DNA and makes a full cut when it's targeted to a specific site. But the nickase version actually just cuts through one strand. So it requires two different guide RNAs to target two different Cas9 nickases to one gene, and then they both make single-strand cuts, and you would then hope that the gene is modified in whatever way you want. This reduces the chance that both guide RNAs will go to the same wrong place and make a full cut in the wrong gene, so it increases specificity a little bit, but it is still possible for a single-strand cut to happen at an off-target site, and it is also a less efficient method There's also work in progress to try and actually require the interaction of two proteins associated with the guide RNAs to make any cut at all, which would really reduce the odds that both are going to be at the same site, if it's not the proper site, making any cuts in the DNA. So that's something in progress, um, but who knows where that's at right now. It's really hard to develop technologies like this. And another issue we encounter 
we talked about before the delivery of CRISPR into the cell for gene editing. Because these proteins are so big, the coding sequences for them that we put into these plasmid DNAs are so large and sometimes can be difficult to get inside certain types of cells without a significant intervention. So if we're talking about like breaking into a cell, it would be trying to break down the entire wall of a house as opposed to breaking in through a window. These interventions would require us to modify the cell's properties even further. For example, most of the genetic editing we would like to do uh, for therapeutic purposes are in stem cells, or cells that have the ability to give rise to many other cells. And it's generally very difficult to transfect or transduce stem cells without altering their properties or disturbing their integrity. So though it may seem like we're only trying to make one small genetic modification, the delivery method, or maybe the genetic modification itself, could actually possibly alter the ability of a stem cell to differentiate or give rise to these many other cells, like those of the blood and the immune system. An important barrier for therapeutics, thus, is the identification of the least invasive or least disruptive way to introduce CRISPR technology into stem cells. I think... We can all agree here that with all the challenges that are still facing CRISPR today, it's not quite ready to be put into humans yet. But even though CRISPR might not be ready for bone marrow transplants, the public health sector has begun to investigate CRISPR in the context of disease-carrying animals like mosquitoes. And, of course, agricultural research is very interested in using CRISPR to create more targeted GMOs. And now, for a minute of science policy. (laughs) <laughs> Monty Python reference. <laughs> Last week, the Associated Press updated its style handbook's advice on what to call, uh, well, okay, so two weeks ago, I might have called them climate skeptics or climate deniers. But now, following the new AP guidelines, I'll say climate doubters, or even better, those who reject mainstream climate science. This update encourages reporting that distinguishes between, as Harvard historian Naomi Oreskes puts it, genuine scientific debate and other types of disagreements. (laughs) Are women less likely than men to be awarded grants in the Netherlands? A study published in PNAS says yes. The study by Dr. Rami Vanderlee and Naomi Elmers found that 14.9% of women but 17.7% of men applying for early career grants were successful. However, the validity of their quantitative results have been hotly disputed since Professor Casper Albers showed that the disparity can be explained by differences in discipline-specific success rates. Women apply less often in physics, where success rates are higher, than in the social sciences and biology, where grant funding is more competitive. As for H.R. 1599, the bill that would ban states from acquiring GM foods to be labeled, the ball is still in the Senate's court, and we'll let you know about any changes there. You can also track it yourself at congress.gov. Okay, guys, so I'm going to start counting, and I want you to stop me when I get to the number of physicists in the U.S. Congress. Okay, zero. Stop. Stop. Oh, you guys suck. No, it's one. It's one. (laughs) Okay, so do you want to know what he is a... The dude, um, what the sole physicist in Congress thinks of the Iran deal. Okay, so at a press conference in September, Democratic Representative Bill Foster announced his support of the deal. 
In order to come to his conclusions, he analyzed the technical aspects of the deal with the help of 15 briefings from the U.S. Department of Energy and other experts. As quoted in the AAAS Science Insider blogs, he says, I went into this putting myself in the mindset of a nuclear proliferator in Iran and saying, what if I try that? What if we find this impossible or blocked by the agreement? What are the alternatives? So you go through these what-if questions, making sure we have all the leaks plugged. Turning to CRISPR, a UK scientist, Kathy Nyakin, recently applied for permission from Britain's Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority to modify human embryos. She wants to use discarded IVF embryos to knock out different genes in order to understand better which genes are involved in human developmental diseases. It's interesting that you brought up um, this Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority because there is still this debate about editing embryos and editing in what we call the germline. So anything like a sperm or an egg that can give rise to a full organism. And in humans, this has become a problem. Is this a debate that we should be having now? Or is this something that we believe is so unethical that we shouldn't even entertain the ability to do that in science? Even though we talked about a lot of the limitations of CRISPR and a lot of the reasons why Um, Things are still being worked out to make it more efficient and reduce side effects. So even though it's not ready clearly to be applied in humans, I still personally think we absolutely should be talking about this now. There's no reason to wait until all of a sudden the technology is ready and then we're just stuck there thinking, oh, guys, don't do anything. We have to figure this out. Like, we should be talking about this as soon as possible. Worst case, the technology never reaches that point, and we still have guidelines in place to make sure we're all ethical. Absolutely. And my my opinion is that, in general, we should be having these debates now because it actually directs what type of research we're going to be funding and what sources of funding are going to be going into that, so private or public funding. There are different ways that we could start doing research with human eggs, embryos, or sperm. So one way which everyone uh, who's anyone (laughs) is against is to actually try to modify an embryo and have that grow into a person. Everyone's against that. But what about modifying embryos like the Kathy Nyakin, who I mentioned during the Science Policy Minute, what about uh, modifying embryos that are not going to develop into people and you just want to understand them for research purposes? You know, and, and, I, and I'm actually totally comfortable with that. And, and I think that it's worth having the debate specifically about whether we want to be able to do research on these things separate from therapeutic stuff. I think that if we want to study humans, we should use relevant human systems. Like we use full mice a lot as a model. We use mice cells a lot as a model. And we do use some human cells as well. But in the end, mice are not actually humans. So we're missing part of the picture. We can get some basic ideas from mice, but if we want the full picture of how things are going to work in humans, we need to progress onto more relevant human things. And I'm not obviously recommending we just jump in and modify these embryos and make full humans. But if these tissues are being discarded, we should use them to get more relevant research than what we have right now. I don't think that you can stop or should stop research just because it can lead to something that might be unethical in the future. You think that um, CRISPR should be able to be used on human eggs, sperm, and embryos Um, for research purposes? 
the problem is for me, I'm not exactly sure what the purpose is to do research on embryos. So I work in I work in stem cell research where we get our stem cells from patient skin cells and we make them into stem cells and then we manipulate them in that way. We can manipulate them in that way using CRISPR. What I'm seeing from Kathy Nyakin's lab is that she is the question that she is addressing is how humans develop. So there we have a lot of developmental disorders. Some of them we know how they work. A lot of them we don't know how they work. And the developmental disorders really start in the first few divisions of the embryo. This can potentially save a lot of parents and children a lot of hardship because we can really understand where and when these disorders are developing, I think I'm okay with using discarded embryos for research. I agree. I think it depends on the question. If there's a if there's another way to answer what you're trying to answer, like what Angela's working on in the lab instead of embryos, then then sure. But for these particular developmental questions, I think I would be okay with hmm. with using embryos. An important aspect of all of this is that while we are clearly very ready to debate this topic, we still have a ways to go to understand the inner workings of CRISPR and other gene editing technologies. We don't actually know enough about human bodies and all of the off-target effects that can happen in human bodies. We don't know how much you're actually changing a human embryo if you do do something with it with CRISPR. We have a really long way to go before we can really, truly, and safely edit a human embryo to someone's specification, I hope that we don't get to that point because there's a lot that we don't understand about even once you edit the genome, what that means for the growth of a human baby. Right, exactly. And one of the important concepts is that a lot of these debates are based on the assumption that we just have this one long sequence of DNA that can just be edited willy-nilly. But there are very many different levels of regulation of uh, genes in the human body and how that is affected throughout the developmental process is something that we really need to uh, still learn. Yeah, right? how these things are affected during development, how different genes interact with each other. All our traits are a lot more complex than just targeting one gene, making one change, and being able to change something. And so, aside from just getting this technology to work and getting it into human cells in general, we actually need to know what we are doing when we approach this. And we just don't understand enough about how humans form and develop to really be able to make a change at this point. And that's probably going to take a lot longer to figure out than even this technology. It's also humbling to consider that one of the tools that has turned a lot of heads and has such great potential across many applications was discovered through basic scientific research endeavors, driven merely by our curiosity to understand how bacteria evolve. And this goes to show how so-called basic research can actually go a long way, even longer than uh, directed therapeutic research. And that's our little plug for basic science for the day. Today, we discussed what CRISPR is, what its applications and limitations are, and delved a little bit into CRISPR in the wild. To read more about the topics we talked about today, visit our website at sitn.hms.harvard.edu slash podcast, where we will post show notes and links to interesting articles. If you'd like to email us with any questions or comments, our address is sitnpodcast at gmail.com. 
or send us a message at the Science in the News Facebook page. If you send your feedback as a voice recording, we could even play it directly on the podcast. We're also brainstorming ideas for our next podcast, and we're hoping that you, the sit and listeners, can help us out. Send us any science topics you'd like to know more about. Then we'll let you know a bunch of the suggestions and ask for your vote so that we can turn the most popular topic into a podcast this spring. Until next time. Bye. 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 Okay, I think we're done. Yeah, that was that was a good little blur. Yeah. <laughs>